Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit, as I said. And the problem with the, the study of the Holy Spirit is that many of the studies start in the book of Acts. If anything, they'll back up to maybe Luke because Luke wrote Luke Acts. However, everything written to the believers in the early church um, assumed that they, that they understood the, their scriptures, which were the Old Testament. Everything that we learn in the New Testament is assuming an understanding of the Old Testament. And, uh, and so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to lay a baseline so that some of the interpretations, some of the things that we're going to say a little bit later, are, uh, we're, we're going to have a baseline or somewhere from which to take, draw on and get a, a proper understanding the way the, at least a little bit closer to the way the, uh, the early church would have understood it. Now, uh, many of you know what uh, Rubik's Cubes are, and I've got grandsons who do them, and they do them fast. They, in fact, they work on timing, see how many seconds it takes them to do. Others of you are into sudo- uh, Sudokus and word, uh, crossword puzzles, mystery novels, and what do they have in common? They're all about solving riddles and mysteries. Isn't that true? That's what they're about. And uh, the Old Testament presents a series of riddles that is finally solved. Well, the, the Old Testament actually solves it. The only thing the Old Testament doesn't do, it doesn't give us the identity of, uh, of the resolution. It doesn't tell us who it is. We, get, we have to wait to the New Testament to find out who it is. But the Old Testament has a series of riddles. And so a lot of people, they get put off by these riddles in the Old Testament. But think about it as a Rubik's Cube adventure or a crossword puzzle. You're going to find out the mystery. You're going to figure it out. Um, And uh, that's what we're going to do as in a novel. And so today I'll lay the foundation for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And it'll be like doing a Rubik's Cube in a flurry. You're not going to, you might find it difficult to keep with, uh, keep up with me. And I have really tried to whittle this thing down to make it just as clear and understandable and precise as you possibly can. I've got, I got uh, 50 plus pages uh, written on this and, and I've, and I'm writing more and I'm trying to put it into just a, a small bit of time. And learning to, and by the way, and next fall, we're going to untangle it. Uh, I've been asked to do a series on it. Next fall, I'll do a series for you. And then we'll do the Rubik's Cube slowly so that you can understand it really, really well. But I think you're going to be able to follow me because this is a particularly smart church. All right? So I want you to stay with me. Don't get put off because of tangles and riddles and stuff. It's actually fascinating. We all love mysteries, don't we? And uh, learning to untangle these riddles will give you great eternal value. So use the pause button. You've got a pause button. If, if, if you've got to go over something again, hit the pause, go back. Now, if you've got kids, you can't do that. Do it later. And don't worry about taking all the notes you can possibly get, okay? I would suggest... You know, take the main chapter headings that we're going to have 
and then maybe later in the week or during your devotional time, take one chapter of what we're taking here at a time and go back into it and learn as much as you can. The storyline, now the storyline of the Bible is driven by a handful of Old Testament promises, which the Bible called covenants. And in fall, I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit and tell you a little bit of what we, what we all mean by that. And uh, they're a little like Russian nesting dolls. You know those uh, Russian nesting dolls and you take the wooden one off, there's the mother, and then you take it off, and you take another one out, and you take the top off, and then you find another one, and another one, and another. I found out they have up to 30. That's incredible. And uh, they're all connected. They all have the same characteristics, and they expand on each other. The promises or the covenants which drive the storyline. There's a storyline here. It's not just a jumbled mixed bunch of thoughts and ideas just thrown together. Not at all. There's a, there's a very clear storyline here, and I, I hope I can make it clear today, okay? Uh, at, at least uh, just as we skim on the top, okay? But it's each one of the promises is like one of those nesting dolls. And we're going to take one, we'll take the top off, we'll take the next one out. And then we'll, we'll go through that one, a little, we'll talk about the characteristics there a little bit, and we'll take the top off and we'll get the next one. You understand? That's how it is. And that's how I want you to understand the storyline of the Old Testament. All right, let's start with chapter one, if you like, or nesting, whichever you prefer. It's, if it's a mystery novel, it's a chapter. And if, it, if it's a nesting doll, then, then call it the mother nesting doll, all right? The fallen covenant with Eve. Well, in Genesis 2.17, God warned Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Experientially, they would know the effects of evil. Physical, psychological, emotional, relational, spiritual brokenness and death. And they and we did indeed come to know these things experientially. And that's very sad. Death, murder, rape, domination, greed, hate, immorality, war, broken families characterize their world and ours. And, but God promised a rescue mission. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to the devil, he said this, I will put enmity between you, the devil, and by the way, anytime you have the third person pronouns, he's talking to the devil, and the you, your, anytime he says he, him, he's talking about the woman's seed, okay, and that'll help you stay, stay together in that particular verse. And the woman, and between your seed... <clears throat> the devil's seed, and her seed, he, Eve's seed, shall bruise you on the head. That's, a, that's, that's way worse than being bruised on the heel. So uh, the seed of the woman is going to bruise or crush, is a better word, crush the head of the devil. And the devil and his seed is gonna, going to bruise the heel of, of the seed of of Eve, but we recognize that it's a single seed that, that's being spoken of here. It's a seed within a seed, almost like another nesting doll, because he, because uh, God keeps talking about he and uh, not them. That's how we know that. 
So though there will be a battle between good and evil in the coming ages, God would raise up a single seed of Eve, a man, to defeat Satan. But we're not told how the seed uh, redeemer will do it. Neither are we told exactly who he is. And uh, we'll learn that later in the story. It won't be as simple as throwing, what we're going to find out is this won't be as simple as just throwing Satan into the abyss. If that's uh, how simple it were, God could have done that already. It was, it was more complicated than that. Genesis chapters 4 to 6, we read on and describes the progressive advance of evil and until God halted it with a flood. You remember, we come down to the flood. But apparently, what we learn is, and by the way, all these stories, you can apply them devotionally, but these stories are there to help guide the storyline of the, of, of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Apparently, you can't just stamp out or flood out evil. For when you do, evil springs right back up. That's the storyline. That, that's the point of the flood. You can't just flood out evil. It, just, it comes back up. I mean, no, nor does the best social environment prevent it. For after the flood, God rebooted the human race with righteous Noah. Ha <laughs> ha. I mean, he was the one that he, he, he called to build the ark to save his family and him. But shortly after he disembarks with his nice little family, he's drunk, he's naked, and he does something so shameful, thankfully we're spared the details of it. And, uh, and, and then it progressively gets worse again. By the time he gets to chapter 11, the people are gathered together, they're building his tower into the heavenlies, uh, to access demonic powers, powers other than God, because they're in rebellion against him. And uh, we're right back to where we started before the flood. The problem is deeper than what we thought. Just before the flood, God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. There's progressive evil. And that every inclination of his heart, or the thoughts of his heart, was only evil all the time. But see what God said <clears throat> immediately after the flood, and after Noah's sacrifice to the Lord. This will surprise you. He said, the Lord smelt a pleasing aroma and said in his heart, I mean, he's happy. Pleasing aroma. He's happy with Noah. Noah's getting off the ark. Noah did what he was supposed to do. He now offers a sacrifice. By the way, the fact that they're giving sacrifices, that's long before the law. And it, this, there's sacrifice because there's separation from God. And so somehow sin has to be atoned for. But anyway, we'll move on. And God is happy with the sacrifice. Look what he writes. Look what he says. It's unbelievable. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Are you kidding me? He just said that before the flood. Now he floods out evil, and he did. It slowed it down, and that's for another, that's another series. Uh, but he slows down evil. He stops it in its track, but he's, you can't flood or stamp it out. God already knows what's going to happen before it even happens. And uh, there were more problems than just the devil and his evil line. 
There was also separation from God, which is why they were thrown out of the garden, why they needed sacrifices so they could even have some form of distant fellowship with God. It wasn't like it was before. There was a heart problem. And then fifth, there was death. Remember, you, you, you read this and you're probably wondering, this is so boring. So-and-so gets born, lives so many years, and then he dies. And then so-and-so is born. And he lives so many years, and he dies. That's another problem that Genesis is trying, trying to bring up. It all came from the fall. And this seed of the woman is going to have to somehow solve all of these problems. It's a riddle. But God said the seed will come from... Uh, so, so far, we don't know who the seed is, and we don't know how he's going to fix it. But God did say that seed would come from Shem's line in Genesis chapter 9, 25, 27. And then we have the lineage of Shem. And you wonder, what's the lineage there for? Well, it's to, to show that what God said. God said he would dwell in the tents of Shem. And you follow the lineage down and boom, you come to chapter 12 and you've got Abraham. And he's in Ur of the Chaldees. And we got this. Now let's take the one nesting egg, open it up. Let's take out the next one. This is the Abrahamic covenant or the promise to Abraham, all right? Well, to infect the nations of the world, God chose Abraham from Shem and made an unconditional covenant with him, promising him three things. Go to the land. Here it is, Genesis chapter 12. Go to the land. I will show you and I will make you a great nation. There's two things. I'll make you a great nation. You're going to need land to live in it. Uh, for a great nation, and in order that the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He would make them righteous. That's how you make a, a great nation in the scriptures. A righteousness exalts a nation, uh, Solomon said in Proverbs. <clears throat> Chapter 14, verse 34. And then he plops them on a piece. So he makes them righteous. He's going to plop them on a piece of land, and he did. That promised land just happens to be where three continents converge. Brilliant strategy. Makes a lot of sense if you're going to infect the nations of the world. And, and, and by the way, in the fall, I'll talk about why it had, why, why a nation. But for now, just, uh, just leave it at that, okay? But he puts them right in there to infect all the other nations. That's incredible. Uh, Genesis 22, 17 to 18. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. That's collective seed. Okay. And as the sand which is on the seashore. Same thing. And your seed shall possess the gates of the enemy. And then verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I don't have time to go and unpack this, but it's beautiful. Paul comments on this in Galatians chapter 3. And here he's talking about the single seed again. It's a single seed coming out of the collective seed. In fact, in other words, there's this, this seed of the woman and uh, Eve. That's the same one. This is, a mystery, this is a mystery story we're going through, isn't it? It's a, it's a Rubik's Cube. And it comes out of the nation, which is collective seed. Out of the, uh, and uh, so, what, it's narrowed down. It's going to come, this, this mystery seed of the woman comes through the line of Shem, comes through Abraham, comes out of the nation of Israel. The, 
Well, that brings us to chapter three, or let's open that top and let's pull out the next nesting doll. It's the Mosaic Covenant or promise. Let's look at this one a little bit. Though more than 400 years separates the book of Exodus from Genesis, it is quickly apparent that the storyline hasn't been broken. God promised to make a nation of Abraham, remember? Give them land and make them a so that they would be a blessing. And he's talking about salvation, and that's in another part. Salvation to the nations. And he promises that. But first, he's going to have to make them a nation. So you get to the book of Exodus, and you see a nation being born from the womb of the, of, you know, in an Egyptian womb, if you like. And they're birthed. And they come through the waters of the Red Sea. The New Testament talks about it that way. So Exodus to Joshua tells us how these three promises were partially fulfilled. Why? Uh, because because they, uh, uh, they were born that way. It was a wonderful covenant. It offered forgiveness. A lot of people, you know, poo-poo on, on, on the Mosaic covenant. But it was actually wonderful. It offered forgiveness. It had a sacrificial system, just like before the law, so that the nation could uh, be forgiven and have a semblance of God's presence among them in the tabernacle and the te temple. It's a wonderful thing. The law taught them about the nature of God, the condition of humanity, and so on and so forth. That's for another time. At Mount Sinai, God told Israel for what purpose he had formed him. He brought him together and he made a covenant with the nation. The other covenant was with a person, and it was, un and it was unconditional. I'm going to do this. I'll, give you, I'll make you a nation. I'll put you in a land. You're going to be a blessing to the people, uh, to the nations of the world. Now he brings it, he births this nation, brings them to a wedding ceremony at the foot of the Mount Sinai. That's, he called himself a husband of them, they were the wife, uh, using different metaphors like that. And he makes a covenant with them. And he says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the kingdom of priests, that means they were supposed to be a nation of priests to the other nations. That's what he's talking about. They partially blessed, and they did partially bless the nations. They gave them the scriptures. Gave, they gave us the scriptures. A living parable for the nations to observe God's nature. When they obeyed, this is how God acts. When you disobeyed, this is how God acts because he's just and righteous and stuff. But he's also merciful and loving and kind. And so they were a living parable to the nations who were surrounding. So they were a kingdom of priests. And it was partially fulfilled. In fact, they brought the gospel to the Gentiles. We got our gospel, the gospel from the Gentiles. Who were the first missionaries? It was the apostles. They went out. They were Jewish. And uh, so they blessed the nations. Well, they were also a holy nation. <laughs> they were to be a holy nation, it said. The Abrahamic covenant said, uh, in the covenant, God promised to unconditionally fulfill the promises of them becoming a righteous nation, giving them land to dwell in, and thirdly, to be a blessing to the nations. God unconditionally, and in the fall, we'll talk about how he did that. In the Mosaic Covenant, it was conditional. They would, they would remain a nation, and they would stay in the land, 
and they would be a blessing to the nations if they obeyed. But if they didn't, curses would come on them. That Deuteronomy 28 talks about a wow, long list. If you obey, wow. If you disobey, and in the end, you're going to get booted out of the land. You're going to be exiled. And that's what Deuteronomy says. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, then all these, uh, and I command you these days, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you and drive, and uh, the Lord will drive you and the king uh, you set over you to a nation unknown to you. Well, that makes sense. You say, well, that sounds really harsh. No, wait a minute, hang on. It actually makes perfect sense. How could God drive out the wicked nations, and they were, and give Israel the land if she were no better than them? If they were no better, and at one point they weren't. It actually says that in scripture. And he exiled them for it. But that, that's a just God, isn't it? If he's going to drive these out so he can put these in to infect it, then they better be better. <laughs> they have to be a good germ to infect the rest of the nations. So God warned that if they disobeyed, they would be driven out. And sometimes people read these things as though he's just, he's just so harsh and stuff. Not at all. He's trying to save the nations. And um, Israel agreed. They said, we'll do everything the Lord has said. That, those, are, those are their words. Exodus 19, verse 8. Well, we know the story, don't we? The people failed, <laughs> incurring the curses of the covenant. Moses, uh, I mean, they're, they're gathered at the foot of the mountain. Moses is called up on the, onto the mountain to be with God to get it writ, chiseled out on, on tablets. As he goes to get the tablets that he's already read to them and they agreed to, they already commit spiritual adultery. And they form this golden calf and they start worshiping him. Unbelievable. And the result was that uh, I think about 3,000 died. Then, uh, 10, uh, here's another example, 10 of 12 spies. Um, they incited the people to refuse to enter the promised land. The nation was sentenced to an additional 38 years in the wilderness. So that entire generation died. Numbers 14.22 says the people tested the Lord 10 times. But the leaders also failed. It wasn't just the people, it was the leaders. They also failed. Uh, Moses dishonored the Lord and was disqualified from taking them in the promised land. Joshua, another great leader, he sinned when the Gibeonites used a ruse to trick him to making a treaty. And it says because he didn't inquire of the Lord. That's why. There is a lesson. And the judges, for 300 years, cycle of failure, and then judgment through invading armies, then repentance, then God would give them a deliverance, then they would fail again, and then, and then they would repent, and then he'd send a deliverer, and it was just over and over. The whole book of Judges, that's what it's about. It's demonstrating that they didn't keep the law. They didn't keep their covenant. They didn't keep their word. And it's, it's going to show up. It's setting up and showing up why God had to eventually exile them. Same when we get to the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. Uh, <clears throat> Samuel Kings. They were written to demonstrate why Israel was finally driven out of the land. It's not, this isn't just 
in individual stories, that's why it keeps saying, uh, so-and-so became a king, and his mother was so-and-so, and he did evil, and then he died. <laughs> and the next one, and sometimes the storyline that goes with it, 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 it was so bad. I mean, the, the best, uh, the three first kings, Saul, disaster. David, the best king they ever had, and then he commits, can you believe it? Adultery and murder. And that's, that was their best one. Solomon, he starts off good, and then he begins to, he ends up uh, serving idols. And, and then uh, God says, well, your kingdom is going to be split from you. So that's the story of the Boam brothers, I call them. You know, his son Rehoboam is, you know, the servant uh, splits it off, and ten, nation, ten, ten tribes go with uh, Jeroboam, a servant, and, and two go with uh, Rehoboam, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and Benjamin. And uh, the northern kings, 19 in a row, every one, it says, were evil. And by 722, they were exiled by the Assyrians. You never heard of the northern kingdom again. That's why they didn't keep the covenant. They were supposed to be a good infection. And the southern kingdom, only six out of the 20 does it say were any good. And out of those, it lists the sins that they committed. They couldn't even keep it either. And the whole point is by 586, 605, 597, 586, they're exiled, three deportations to Babylon, and the southern kingdom is gone for 70 years till Jeremiah prophesies that they're going to come back for 70 years. But when they came back for, after the seven years, they never were an autonomous nation again or kingdom. And yet God says in, to Abraham, one day, one day, you're going to be a righteous nation. They've never been a fully righteous nation. They will one day. One day you'll be in the land. They've never occupied the land that the borders set. And number three, you're, you're going to be a, a, a real blessing to the nations. They've been a partial blessing to the nations, but they haven't fulfilled their full destiny. God says he's going to do it. And um, um, I have no idea where I am. Yeah. Somebody else want to preach this? All right. <laughs> so, it, uh, here, here's the problem. It seems like the two covenants seem to contradict each other. The one says, God is going to do it, no matter what you do. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The second covenant says, but you only get to stay in a land, be a nation, and bless the people if you keep the law, if, if you keep the covenant. Now, that doesn't make sense. It sounds like these two covenants are at odds. It's a riddle. It's a riddle. Um, uh, it sounds like they're contradictory. Yeah, they, they are. If you try to solve it the way you think, you're going to come up wrong every time. There is a way to solve this, and God had it. It was an impossible riddle, but God had the answer. Let's go to chapter 4. Let's take out the next nesting doll and let's open it up. It's the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant promised to David. And that's made uh, some four, 450 years later, 400 years, 500 years later. 500 years before Israel was removed from the land for the failures of the people and leaders, like I just mentioned, God made a big promise to King David because he knew they wouldn't be able to keep it. Doesn't that excite you? God's never fooled by anything. <laughs> Long before Adam and Eve failed, it says that in eternity past, 
the Trinity got together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they made a, they made a plan. And here's the plan as it unfolds. Anyway, David wanted to build a house for God. Remember that? The temple? Instead, God promised David he wanted to build David a house or a dynasty instead. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. It says, The Lord himself will establish a house for you, David, and I will raise up your offspring. He's talking about a single seed here, and I don't have time to unpack that. He is, but there, take a look at the next thing. He is the one. There it is. It's a pronoun, singular pronoun. He, male, just like that seed out of Genesis uh, with Eve, just like the seed of, of uh, Abraham. Here we are again. I told you they were connected, had similar characteristics. And um, he's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice the seed. It's, it's the same thing. But now we see that the seed is a king. Oh, because he has a kingdom. This king will be, uh, be able to manage what no other leader or king of Israel could do. He's going to be able to, get this, prevent the Mosaic curses and fulfill the covenant made to Abraham at the same time. Ha! Well, how do you do, uh, how do we know? Well, it says his kingdom endures forever, which means no exile. But if you don't keep the covenant, you get exiled. That's what we just found out. The fact that his kingdom endures forever means he keeps the covenant. Well, that means this king, uh, he, he, uh, he has to be righteous. Precisely. And 350 years later, Jeremiah predicted that this king would be righteous. He said, I will raise up to David. This is, and by the way, Jeremiah prophesied this before the, the final kingdom went into exile. And he said, I will raise up to David a righteous branch. But he said this after the promise made to David. A king. Yet, who but God is righteous? Exactly. <laughs> so now we find out this seed is not, you know, not only is from Shem, not only is from Abraham, not only is from Israel, he's Jewish. Not only is he king, he's righteous. And he's righteous because he's God. Oh my goodness. Incredible. More of the colors are lining up, aren't they? Which is why Jeremiah continued in the very next verse. He will be called the Lord our righteousness. Speaking of the exact same person, this king is going to be the Lord of righteousness. This king can meet the conditions of the Mosaic covenant because he is righteous. And he is righteous because he's God, because he's a he is a divine king. And thus the nation is able to endure forever in the land... And the nations can be blessed. And, he's, and he fulfills the Old Testament. Oh, that hasn't all happened yet. Part of it has happened, but it hasn't all happened. It's going to all happen. But that's for another series. <laughs> Psalm 72, David said this. 
all nations will be blessed through him. There it is. One of the ways the God King blesses the nations is by ruling them with wisdom and peace and justice and righteousness. That's found in Jeremiah 23, 5 and Isaiah 9, 7. What a promise of hope for a world in desperate need of, of these four things. Amen. We have the perfect God King who can fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and prevent the curses of the Mosaic covenant all at the same time. That's how he does it. Well, let's take out the nest, next nesting egg. Let's open the head. And we come to the new covenant. Oh. Let's take a look what it says. This is several hundred years later, about 400 years later. However, we still have a problem left with the riddle. You know what it is? We got the right leader. But what do we do with the people? The people are a mess. They need forgiveness so they can avert judgment. They need ability to obey because they have no ability to obey. And they need the presence of God in their life because they're estranged from him. That's got to be restored. To resolve these three problems, Jeremiah predicted a new covenant. And here's how the new covenant addressed the problems. The first one, we need forgiveness to avert judgment. After the fall, people had to make sacrifices to avert God's judgment. But it would take an infinite number of animal sacrifices to do that. Infinite. For a distanced relation, just to maintain a distance relationship with God. Infinite number because you never stop sinning. And because a lesser cannot pay for a greater. It's not good enough. Hebrews talks about that. But the Old Testament knew that. The Old Testament writers knew that. Yet in the new covenant, God said he would thoroughly cleanse them from sin. Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities. How? They needed a better sacrifice. One who is greater. By the way, that Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both talked about the new covenant. And so I'm, I'm using, using both of them. But they would need a better sacrifice for that. And Isaiah explained it well. He said, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse and from his roots a branch. So when you, hear, when you read in the Old Testament, you read about uh, this, the branch. And you go, what on earth is this? Just think, just, just, just think about what he's saying. A stump is left from Israel. Why? Because they were exiled. There's no nation left. It's just a stump. It's not dead. It's just not this big, beautiful kingdom tree anymore. It's cut down. God cut it down because it was no good. But he said that a shoot or a branch would grow out of it. That's the metaphor, what he's talking about. So Israel had been cut down as a nation, but a shoot or branch will come out of it into a great kingdom again. And by the way, Jesus later, he often talked about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God that he was going to set up. His disciples kept saying, when are you going to set it up? When are you going to set it up? Zechariah explicitly says, this branch is also called a servant because he does whatever God says. I'm going to bring, to, uh, bring my servant the branch. So Isaiah says that this branch king servant will be sacrificed. Isaiah 52, 
Uh, I want to preach a whole message on this. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, crucified. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. There it is. He's the sacrifice. This branch servant king seed is the sacrifice. Wow. Not only if, because he's greater than us, so you only need one sacrifice. Not only does this seed king, a Davidic king, bring blessing to the nations with his an eternal wise just reign because he's righteous, he blesses them by being their substitutionary sacrifice so they can be forgiven, avert judgment, and restored to fellowship. That's called salvation. And Isaiah said that. He said, I'll, uh, I will also make you, the divine king he's talking about here, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This one. This is the one that was promised to Abraham. It's going to be a blessing to the nations. We, remember we said <laughs> Israel wasn't able to, you know, could partially do it. Yes, they were doing it. God was using it partially. But he said, ultimately, the means by which to do it, there's only one that can actually pull this off. It's going to be this righteous one. All right. Here's the second problem. What was the first problem? They needed forgiveness to avert judgment. Second one is the people needed ability to obey. Oh, remember, every inclination of the heart was only to evil all the time. Twice in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 8. Remember, God said that. But Ezekiel, uh, and the new covenant, uh, in the new covenant, Ezekiel tells us the new covenant will fix this too. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But how? Isaiah told us a divine king would be the sacrifice to cleanse from sins. And Ezekiel tells us that the one who sprinkles the nations with the blood of his own sacrifice is the same one who gives us a new heart. And guess what that new heart is? Paul talks about it. He expands on it, calls it a new nature. It's Christ's nature. But you shouldn't know that yet. Because we're still in the Old Testament. We don't know the identity, remember? But that's what he's talking about. Paul didn't just dream up this stuff about the nature. He got it out of the Old Testament. And um, the third problem, the people needed presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 27, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Because of the sacrifices, God dwelt among them in the tabernacle in the temple. They, 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 they could approach him from a distance. They could never go in the holy place. But now he says, because the sacrifice, which is greater, remember the, the veil was rent, and we have access to the Father? That's what he's talking about here. And um, uh, he, God promises to dwell much closer in new temples. Us. That's as close as it gets. Amen. And now we know that this Holy Spirit comes from this divine king. Well, that brings us to the final chapter. We'll pull, off the, pull out the last nesting doll that we're going to get a chance to look at today. There's more, actually. 
But we'll pull out the last one and we'll look at this one. See what happens in the New Testament. Who is this seed king who will reign one day? Who will sacrifice himself? Who will give us hearts to obey? Who will give us the presence of his, uh, uh, bring us into the presence of God himself by the Holy Spirit? The Old Testament gives us over 300 clues, but a chief clue is that he would have a special anointing of the Spirit. That's what the series is about. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my, what? Spirit in him. Now, uh, uh, the, our, the word anointing is our English translation for the Hebrew Messiah or Greek Christos. And Christ is just the transliteration of the Greek. And that means that Christ means anointing. So every time you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the anointed one. Anointed with what? The spirit. This is very significant. Every time you say Jesus Christ, that's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. The last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, in the 430s before Christ, said that the Lord would send a messenger ahead to identify him. I will send my messenger. Now, watch carefully. This, and we know who that is. <laughs> uh, but we'll find out. Who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. That's this. That's this seed. That's this king. This Davidic king. This branch, this servant, that's the one. He's the messenger of the covenant. But somebody is going to be the MC and is going to introduce him. When we open up our New Testaments 400 years after this prophecy, we read that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, and this is in the book of Luke. And uh, who was a temple priest, and he was, uh, he was ministering at the temple right then. And Gabriel informed him that he and Elizabeth would have a son, who we know is John the Baptist, who would be this forerunner messenger that Malachi spoke about. He's going to be the MC. And John identified Jesus as the sacrifice and the anointed one. Listen to what he said. John, in John chapter 1, 29 and 32, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew that that was the one. The one that the, all the prophets have been talking about. The whole storyline is about, I'm putting a name and a face to him now. His name is Jesus. Wow. John knew who the Messiah was because he, told, he had been told that it would be the one on whom the Spirit would descend. John, uh, here's verse 33. I would, I would not have known him. <laughs> like in other words, you can't recognize him. I wouldn't have known him. I wouldn't have recognized him except that the one who sent me, God, to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't a new concept. Isaiah had already said that he would be anointed with the Spirit in a special way. 
Now, John's saying, uh, God tells John, you're the one who's going to see it, and you're the one that's going to then introduce him. This happened when John baptized Jesus in the, in, the, in the Jordan. And John says that this is the one who will baptize us with the Spirit. Jesus, of course, said, my, uh, you know, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he agreed that he was that sacrifice and the one who would anoint and baptize uh, all believers with the Holy Spirit. Well, let's summarize it. What have we learned? God promised that a seed would crush the devil, but there was more to it than just throwing him into the abyss, we found out. Already by the time we get to Genesis 6, we found that there's this banishment from God that would have to be resolved, progressive evil that you're going to have to deal with, death, and a heart inclined only to evil. <clears throat> God promised the divine seed king who would resolve all that. He's called variously seed and prophet and king, son of God, servant, sacrifice, ruler, branch, son of man, Messiah, the anointed one. And the Old Testament storyline tells us we discovered what he would do and how he would do it. And when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament identifies this mysterious person. It's Jesus. Click. First coming. In his first coming, Jesus secured the forgiveness, a new heart, that's the new nature, his nature in us, presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We receive all three of these at salvation. We're going to be talking especially about that spirit one. At the second coming, Jesus will judge all evil, give us resurrection bodies, and rule eternally in righteousness, justice, and peace. That's just ahead. Wow. It's incredible. We just, I'm reminded, Jesus was walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And, um, and it says that he walked them, because they didn't understand what had just happened. He walked them through the Old Testament and told them the storyline. Beginning with Moses, then the former prophets, and then the latter prophets. And that's just what, by his spirit, he helped us to skim through very quickly this morning. This is what I'd like you to do. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, but we, we already saw all these other designations for them, and each designation has a story behind it. Why he's designated that. Like I explained Branch, for example. What I'd like you to do for the next three minutes is just spend a few minutes listening in prayer, and maybe you want to take out your journals and just write down, and we've put up some of the names there, just write down, take one or two, and write down what that means, what you've learned this means. And then this week, we're going to, uh, what I invite you to do during your devotions is take 
one of those every day and just learn all you can about it. He is the one. And we're going to unpack that last one, Messiah, anointed one over the next five weeks. Let's just listen in prayer and thank him for who he is. Well, I wrote something down in mine. I took that root one. I thought, what can you do with that? Or the branch, I'm sorry, the branch. And I wrote down, Lord, you are that shoot. You're that root that can come into the mess of our lives when it's completely ruined and cut down. And a shoot comes up and we can follow you as you grow it into a great, something great again. That's what he is. He's the branch. That's what he did for, that's what he's doing for Israel. That's what he's doing for the world. God bless you. I'm going to hand this over now to Zach. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.